Coming around to the closing chapters of Genesis now and to the 48th, I invite you to turn with me this morning. We find Jacob where we left him last week in his bed. Only now things have taken a decided turn toward the closing of Jacob's life. It will be of particular interest uh, to you to know, by the way, that this episode that we are about to read is the one thing that the Holy Spirit uh, takes and recalls and records in that famous chapter in the epistle to the Hebrews, Jacob blessing his sons by faith. His adopted sons here, the sons of his son, Joseph. Genesis chapter 48, we will be reading the entire chapter. Let's first go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, send thy spirit, we pray, that we may look upon the events recorded here, not merely with the eyes of our bodies and the ears of our bodies, but with the eyes and ears of faith, that we may see what your own scripture, what your own spirit has drawn attention to here for our imitation in our lives as well. It's having set Jacob at this place and this time in his life before us, as one whose faith we should imitate ourselves. Above all, our Father, as has already been prayed this morning, glorify thy great name. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 48, beginning at verse 1. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, And it was told to Jacob, your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you and I will make of you a company of peoples. And will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. Now, what Jacob has just done, or is setting the stage to do, is truly a wonderful thing. What he is saying is that Ephraim and Manasseh, his grandsons, the sons of Joseph now, who were born in Egypt, shall be on par with Reuben and Simeon, who you will remember are the two oldest sons of Jacob. What we're about to read then amounts to giving Joseph... The double portion, which would typically have fallen to the oldest son, would have gone to Reuben. The act has been called the adoption of Joseph's sons as Jacob's own, and indeed there seem to be some elements in the passage that might smack of of an ancient adoption ritual. This is also the reason, by the way, that when the people of Israel went and portioned off the promised land... Remember that upon their arrival there so many years later, centuries later, there is no place on that 
division of the land of Canaan called the tribe of Joseph. Joseph's tribe, so to speak, will actually consist of two, Manasseh and Ephraim. Well, now the old man's mind begins to wander a a bit, perhaps. All of this talk about Joseph reminds Jacob about his dear favored wife, and he reminisces in verse 7. As for me, when I came from Paddan, to my sorrow Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way. When there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Now that strikes us a little bit funny. This may be a little odd. Surely he knows who it is who stands before him, or does he? There are a few possible explanations. One is that what we're about to read is, is what we're about to read, that Jacob's eyesight was failing. Another explanation might be that he has uh, His mind is slipping a bit here, and he's now having to draw it back from the past and the recollections of Rachel into the the present. It's also entirely possible, though, that the question is part of an ancient adoption ritual. At any rate, Joseph answers in verse 9, Joseph said to his father, They are my sons, whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. Now this is no accident that uh, Joseph arranges his sons this way in preparation for Jacob's blessing. The blessing of the right hand was deemed greater than the blessing of the left And Manasseh being the older of the two, and therefore in Joseph's mind, the one rightly to receive the greater blessing by the law of primogenitor, is positioned by Joseph to receive it. But God has other plans, and God, we've seen, has had other plans in the past too. Nothing new here. We've seen this before, haven't we, in the blessing of Isaac instead of Ishmael, and the blessing of Jacob instead of Esau. In other words, the blessing of the younger instead of the older, and now with these young men as well. Verse 14, And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands. For Manasseh was the firstborn, and he blessed Joseph And said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long, to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. 
And in them let my name be carried on, the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn, put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Now it's difficult for us to understand or to know exactly to exactly what slope Jacob is referring when he gives it to Joseph. Some theorize that what Jacob meant is the place called Shechem, and that indeed is what the Hebrew sounds like. But why Jacob would say that he had taken it, when we can remember that it was his sons, Simeon and Levi, who so terribly slaughtered the people uh, through deceit and with the sword. This raises some serious questions for us. Others Wonder if perhaps we simply haven't a record here of uh, we, that we haven't a record that there is no record of the fight to which Jacob is here referring. The one view I find most intriguing is that Jacob is here referring actually to a future conquest that Jacob's sword and bow in the hands of his descendants will take. Uh, that particular piece of land from the Amorites centuries down the road, and that Jacob speaks of it in the past tense simply because the conquest is already, by the promise of God, fully certain. I tell you, I lean toward that last interpretation here because I think it fits well with the entire thrust of the passage. Yes, there are some reminiscences, some looking back on the faithfulness of God in the past, and no doubt many sermons could be written about the faith of Jacob as he looks back on the events of his life and sees God's hand in in them in a way that perhaps he had failed to see it before. But it seems to me that the overall thrust of the passage as a whole is clearly forward clearly looking forward, a long way forward. And what we have here is Jacob, the last patriarch, blessing his sons and looking on them through physical eyes that are dim, but spiritual eyes that are 20-20, looking through them far, far into the future, 
Those eyes are the eyes of faith. What we might call far-sighted faith. The first chapter of her novel, Sense and Sensibility, Jane Austen tells the story about a certain Mr. Henry Dashwood of Norland Estate in England during the Victorian culture of the 18th century. Mr. Dashwood had inherited the great and glorious manor in which they were living from his uncle before him, who died while under his care. Mr. Dashwood lived in a great house, and that great house with his son from a previous marriage and his current wife, who had, with whom he had three daughters, and whom he loved dearly. His son was then married and moved elsewhere, but his wife and his three dependent daughters still lived at home in the Norland estate. However, at the beginning of the novel, it is Mr. Henry Dashwood who is on his deathbed and so calls upon his son, who comes to his side and then drawing up strength to express the urgency which illness could command, informs the boy that the house and everything else, all but 10,000 pounds, was to be passed on to him, that is, on to the son. Henry Dashwood, you see, had no choice in the matter. That is the way he inherited it, with the provision that beyond the 10,000 pounds made uh, as a provision for the wife and daughters, all should go to his son, John Dashwood. And so he makes a son promise to him, while he's on his deathbed, makes his son promise to him, and he addresses him this way, Son, I am about to die, and all of this will be yours. Norland estate is to be your inheritance, but your stepmother and three sisters, for them there, are, there is only 10,000 pounds. Promise me, son, promise me that you will do everything in your power to care for them. Well, his son promises, and eased by the promise of his son, Henry Dashwood dies. Upon leaving his father's side, John Dashwood pledges himself to give to his stepmother and to his sisters 3,000 pounds a year to live on. However, in the second chapter of the book, Austin gives the account of the insipid nature of greed and the diabolical, almost comical reasonings of John and the even greedier Mrs. John Dashwood, who after much thought and analysis finally come to the conclusion that, in fact, if they are careful, the four women can live nicely off of the 10,000 pounds for the rest of their life, a decision which renders them stricken with poverty as the money is quickly used up for their most basic of needs. Mr. Henry Dashwood, you see, died in faith. He died in his faith, in his faith placed in his son, whose promise, as it turned out later, was a very poor object for his faith. Mr. Dashwood had far-sighted faith. He looked far into the future and he saw his beloved wife and his daughters being cared for based on the promise of his son. But the promise fell through and the faith that brought him temporary comfort on his deathbed, it turned out, was based on a promise equally as temporary. 
Generations of Christians have lain on their deathbed as well and have died in the faith, comforted in the faith of the promises, not of a silly man, but of God. They could see with the eyes of faith these Christians could, even at the very threshold of death itself, the fulfillment of the promises of God far, far in the future, off in the distance. And so they have lived and died. Christians have generation after generation after generation comforted by what they could see only through the eyes of far-sighted faith. And God commends them in the scripture he does, and us who live by such a faith as well. He commends us for living and for dying with far-sighted faith, faith which lays hold of his promises, though their fulfillment lie far, far in the distant future for all we know. It was just such faith that Jacob, with such faith that Jacob ended his life, blessing his grandsons. The same faith with which John Wesley could write his and his brother's epitaphs for their graves at Westminster Abbey, which read, God buries his workmen and continues his work. The confidence by which a Christian can close his eyes in death and know by a far-sighted faith that the fulfillment of God's promise, though yet to come, is fully certain. So what does far-sighted faith look like today? Well, far-sighted faith lives today in light of what it sees in the future. Though his physical eyes were dim, As he blessed the boys from his deathbed, Jacob's spiritual eyes were clear, for the future was bright to his view. So we must live as well, you and I, seeing, looking ahead by faith. Now the fact of the matter is, you all live this way already to some extent. In many ways, as you're driving down the road, you drive in the confidence of what you can see, what you can see far, far ahead of you. You drive with the confidence that your eyes are not fooling you as you look ahead and see that the road continues, that in fact, the pavement is not suddenly going to run out and you drive over a cliff. And because you can see far, far ahead, you drive with confidence right here. I've not always worn glasses. In fact, it wasn't until I was 15 that I found out that I needed them. Come to think of it, I should probably call my folks and explain that's why my grades were the way they were until I was 15. But it was in the course of preparing to get my driver's permit that I was told that I needed glasses. I put my head in that machine, you know, that the officer requires you to put your head in and your forehead presses on the button and he says, where do you see the lights? I didn't see any. 
saw some blurs here and there. It was on that day that I learned of my own nearsightedness and my need of glasses in order to drive. How else could I confidently drive if I had no idea what was coming at me or where I was going? The same is true of us all spiritually as well. Real confidence, real joy, no matter what the present circumstance, comes only with knowing what is in the distance. We know that confidence. We can speak with a certain joy and hope because we can see into the future. We can. We have the glasses, so to speak, the glasses of faith. Like Jacob did, we have the assurance of things hoped for. True Christians in the hearing of my voice know that we could not possibly face a day in this life with all of its trials and all of its pain and its difficulties without this far-sighted faith that sees the end. Perfectly clearly, the eyes of faith see where this is going. God's promises fulfilled, every one of them wonderfully fulfilled for us and for our children. Which brings me to the second point. Farsighted faith lives today in light of what it sees in the future. And second, farsighted faith raises children in light of what it sees in the future. It's a principle everywhere demonstrated in the scripture and taught in any number of ways that it is by faith that you raise your children. It is an act of faith, being careful to pass on that faith to the next generation. In fact, it is, according to the scripture, God's will that faith should run the lines of generations. And this will be, if you are parents, the greatest proving ground of the condition of your faith. To the degree that the promises of God are openly precious to you. Parents, that your eyes are fixed on the Lord to that degree, you will be the instruments of passing the faith along to your children and to your grandchildren. To the degree, to that degree, you will impress upon their minds and their hearts by God's grace the reality of the promises which require far-sighted faith to lay hold of. That Jacob blessed his grandchildren here really is no great surprise. That was the custom. What is remarkable is the blessing itself, that they would grow into a multitude, that they will possess the land of their fathers, as he says to Joseph. Here is a man, Jacob, who possesses virtually nothing in the land of promise. Blessing boys who were coming up in a land of riches and fatness in Egypt. What could be more unlikely than that two Egyptian princes would leave the land of Egypt and go to a land they had never seen? Or that they should each become a separate tribe and that the elder would serve the younger? 
Yet these things Jacob comprehended by faith and spoke of to his children and to his grandchildren. I tell you, in the very same way, you you pass down the promises of God to your children and to your grandchildren. Like Jacob, you haven't any physical evidence that you can place on the table in front of your children, in front of their physical eyes. Nothing in your hand with which to prove the coming of God, the realities of heaven and hell, of God's judgment. Yet when you tell your children the promises of God and impress them upon your children all through the day, the sheer confidence of your far-sighted faith lived out before them in all of its multifarious applications, spoken about with them as you go along the way, taught to them from the beginning of the day to the end. These will be the instruments of God for seeing that that same faith follow them and their children after them to their own deathbeds as well. In fact, Christian parents and grandparents dare not only to pass that faith along, but actually to see it intensify in the next generation and with every succeeding generation. Remember the epitaph on the grave of Richard Mather, father of Increase Mather, the father of Cotton Mather, who was the great Boston minister, third in a line of New England Puritan scholars and pastors. On Richard Mather's grave are written these words. Here lies Richard Mather, who had a son greater than his father, and again a grandson greater than either. Why? Because they lived and passed down from generation to generation the vision granted only by far-sighted faith. Enough to see the future, to grasp the greatest realities, even if they should materialize only after generations and generations have come and gone. Which brings me then to the third point. Not only must we live today in light of what we see with far-sighted faith, and not only must we raise the next generation and the generation after that in that same light, but then also third, we must die in light of what far-sighted faith sees in the future. Few things are so stirring and so noble as the death of a saint. A saint who approaches the very threshold of death and finally enters through that door by faith. Remember the Bible's own comment on this whole chapter. 
writer of Hebrews says, By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship. Here is faith which sees far into the future, content even in the pains of old age and the afflictions that come with the years and the rapid approach of death, not to complain, not to become bitter, but to worship. Faith which gives eyes to see far into the future even when physical eyes are growing dim, too dim to see what's right before them. I love that passage from the biography of Charles Hodge, the great American Princeton theologian, written by his son Archibald Alexander Hodge about his father in the autumn of his days. From this time to the end, he was an old man, visibly ripening for another life. His faith was the substance of things hoped for, and for him the triumph had virtually come. He was conscious of past sins and of present imperfections, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. More and more habitually he looked upward instead of, of inward. His heart was filled with hope and joy as his face was made to shine by him who was the health of his countenance and his God. Oh, Christians, brothers and sisters, dear flock, that the same might be said you and of me about the closing of our lives, that our faith was made the more evident and lovely as it brought to us, brought us to the very threshold of heaven where God's presence illuminated a wrinkled face worn by time but ready and confident to meet the Lord. Amen.